Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Ralph Moore and Myron Pierce on Practical Multiplication. Practical Multiplication highlights Exponential's core church multiplication frameworks with a focus on the everyday practical nature of how these concepts can help pastors and church planners make disciples and multiply churches. Now, let's join Ralph Moore and Myron Pierce. What's happening? What's going on? Exponential family. This is Pastor Myron Pierce, and I'm here with my good friend, more like my papa in the faith, uh, Ralph Moore. And uh, we have a new friend on today for practical multiplication. It's going to be off the hook, off the chain. Uh, he is an amazing guy. I'm going to let him uh, let him kind of share who he is. I think Ralph's going to key in. But Parker Green, man, how are you doing, bro? It's good to good to have Very you. Good. 75 and sunny, almost sunny in Southern California. So life is well, good. It's 40-something it's degrees <laughs> Omaha, so I'm mad at you right now, bro. <laughs> How's that even possible? <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so it's Rob, how did you impart your meeting? Well, I was going to tell you, my weather report, since you guys both did, it's 75 and sunny, and about eight miles from my house, there's a wildfire bearing down on us, and it's it's 11% controlled after four or five days. This is crazy. Oh, man. Uh, so I don't get up and run. Who knows? Um, yeah, I, I got connected with Parker before he was born. Uh, his mom Davis was my secretary. His dad, Bob Green, was uh, one of the pillars of our church. I mean, you know, young guy, come out of the Navy, had a little alcohol problems. Uh, one thing led to another. He found the Lord, brought his dad into the church. Uh, then he met Mavis. She was my secretary, I think, like Four days, four days a week, four hours a day, something like that. She was 19 years old. I was 27. And uh, and then we kind of lost touch. That, that's one of the problems with the Hope Chapels. We never had control. So we, we just, you know, and I don't think they were in a Hope Chapel, but we still just lost kind of touch. And then uh, picked it up again a, a few years ago, actually through Exponential. And then I heard about Parker that uh, he'd worked at Hillsong as a junior high pastor in Australia, and then at Mega Church in New York City. And um, and and so it, it's kind of like a, a cousin to the ministry. And I'm pretty excited about the things he's doing. He's going to tell you about it. And uh, I, I think it's going to liberate a lot of people who are fearful of trying to do microchurch. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad uh, we have you here, Parker, man. Would you maybe give give all of us here just an overview of the ministry? Yeah. Uh, how you got where you are? Yeah, so uh, we're uh, based in Southern California. We're in Orange County. 
um, and we're planting microchurches, so churches and homes. Um, we don't use house church very often um, as language just because um, we kind of found that's like bitter buns party at 20 and it doesn't work out very well long term. Um, so we're kind of trying to shift the culture and shift the name. Um, our, our idea is not to like be mad and angry at the church and talk about it over dinner. Um, our idea is to um, reach lost people, make disciples and multiply churches. Um, beginning of 2016, I was about to have my first boy, David. Um, and take over with my wife two campuses in New York. Um, so I was stressed out. So we fasted and prayed for 21 days, and then God wouldn't leave me alone about California. Um, <laughs> so, and by, by about day 10, you don't care what people think anymore. So you're like, I got this crazy idea, but I don't care. If I can not eat, I can do anything. <laughs> um, so my wife came back. Um, I looked starved to death, about 25, 30 pounds lighter. Um, and stinky. I don't know if you guys have ever fasted more than five or six days, but you just start to stink. <laughs> like you just smell sour all the time. Um, we moved out here and um, started a church in our house and kind of had bad mega church for the first like three or four months and I hated it. Um, and we've learned from there um, to adjust and to keep the main thing the main thing and focus on what the master asked for, which is more disciples. So that's a short version. And we have two more children now. So we have a three, a four-year-old and a three and a half month old little girl. So my wife is done being pregnant, she says. <laughs> Surgery coming soon. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you mentioned um, discipleship a little bit. Yeah. What's your, uh, more for you, like what is a disciple and then what's your discipleship model? Great. Um, a disciple, sim simply put, is, I mean, someone that loves God, loves people, um, is part of a church. But um, our aim for discipleship is unbroken fellowship with Christ and obedience to him. So that's what we're always aiming for. Um, that is, that's the aim of discipleship, period, for us. Because if you can get those things right, if you read John, the back end of John especially, I mean, the last thing Jesus says to his disciples is just essentially like, stay connected to me. Stay connected, stay attached to the vine, stay in relationship with me. Um, things will get hard. Think some things will be good back and forth, but um, the world's going to hate you, but stay connected to me um, and you'll bear fruit. So a disciple is someone that's seeking Jesus, being with Jesus and doing what he asked them to do, simply put. Um, and the way we set up our discipleship, our model I mean, everything is discipleship. It's hard to say what a model specifically is. Like, we have something in our church called the open door policy. Um, and that means our doors open, our fridge is open, the fridge doors are open, you know, our cabinet doors are open. Um, and like discipleship for us is like, it's mostly like millennials and Gen Z. So mostly you're just dealing with bad parenting. Um, so you just gotta like teach people how to be like human beings. We're like, we literally have taught some of our disciples how to cook pasta. Yeah. Um, so, um, that's like, it's life on life stuff. So that's the first thing I'd say it's everything. And that's how Jesus did it. I mean, he's with his guys all the time. Um, but I guess the more formal version of it would be our fire teams, three to five people of the same sex guys or girls, uh, meeting together on a weekly basis. Um, and we kind of pulled that idea from the Marine Corps. It's like the people you're with all the time. It's the people you're fighting with. It's the people you divulge your deepest secrets and you, your, your biggest victories with, 
Um, it's the people that are on a group text with you 24 seven. They're the people that I literally, when I go out of town, I'm like, make sure you look after my wife, make sure my house is safe. Um, you know, check in on my kids. Um, so like it's, that's my little family unit. Um, and that's kind of how we do it. So we have the big family unit, which is 30, 40 people in a home. That's a micro church. Um, we try and keep it at, at that number and then multiply from there. Cause you start to forget people's names and how to pray for people and stuff. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, that's, that's the, the model. And then we use a compass rose, which is, you know, you basically go through the word, keep people accountable to the word, see how people are doing and then obey what it says. Mm. When you, when you first got started with, with salt churches, what, what was the pivot in your mind towards micro church and why fundamentally um, is this expression of, of the church? How, why has it been so successful for you? Um, I saw it work, man. <laughs> Six months in, I had no idea. I did it all like on a leap of faith, to be honest. And like biblically, like I had no idea what I was doing. Like I was trained at Hillsong. Like that's the, they're the baller mega church. Like that's, they're doing what everyone's trying to copy poorly. Right. right. So like they're, they're like the mega mega. So for me, I was like excellence time, like services, everything's churning the Sunday service, feeding that monster. Um, but I didn't see a significant transformation in people's individual lives or um, the sense of community togetherness and focus on the mission of Jesus. Um, when, when Sunday service became the central fact, um, I became a glorified event manager and that's kind of what started to kill me over, over time. It's like, I'm renting a venue. I'm in New York. Cause if you're buying a venue, you're, <laughs> you're doing something that's not church planting. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I think that's what started, you know, Phyllis, like philosophically leading, leading me towards it. Um, but microchurches really, um, became, a, clicked at six to eight months after we were here. Um, and I saw a couple people's rent get paid. Um, I saw a guy struggling with homosexuality, um, not practicing any spiritual disciplines in his life. Um, we paid for a trip for him to get solitude and silence out in the woods on his own cause he was broke at the time. Um, I started to see lives actually transform marriages get saved literally from adultery because of the family unit they're supported with. Um, like there was adultery and they got back together. They love each other more than ever. And that happened in the context of, of a micro church. So that's when I, when I started to believe um, mm. that it could be when I was multiplying it, that I was actually multiplying a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, Ralph, uh, not too long ago, it's on the Exponential site, wrote a book called Mega Multi Multiply. And I think Ralph um, or Micro, one of those, I think you unpacked Micro Church. And it'd be interesting to see or hear from you, Ralph, on, on just the whole components of Micro Church. And then Parker, would you weigh in on that as well? This <laughs> man on what Ralph's saying. Yeah, no big deal, man. That's fine. <laughs> I, I think uh, what Parker defined as a disciple really works for me. And uh, I, I, I always put heavy emphasis on Romans 12, where it says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. 
And to me, uh, you know, one of the issues that comes up as soon as we discuss microchurch, everybody wants to argue about ecclesial minimums. I, I remember sitting next to a guy who's a pastor of a mega church, and he has planted a few churches, although he's a little tenuous about that because a high cost, money, best leaders, don't want to give them up, all that. And so he, I, he knew I'd written this book, and I actually had done some teaching, and he challenged me, you know, explain your ecclesial minimums. And uh, I, I'm getting ready to go, and it's going to turn into an argument. There's a guy sitting next to me, and he goes, whoa, Ralph, before you answer that question, let's ask this guy to explain his ecclesial minimums for the mega church that he pastors. You know, okay. define it biblically. And that ended the conversation. That was there was there was no way he was going there. And with microchurch, uh, my friend Brian Sanders, who started the Tampa Underground, is now working in Ireland. Incredible man. Uh, he basically says that we're we're looking at worship, which is Romans twelve worship. Worship with your life. Uh, we're looking at community. People are loving each other, and we're looking at mission. They're doing the Great Commission one way or another. Uh, their model is distinctly different than, than what Parker's doing or most of us are doing in that they really are reaching deep into the pockets of, of culture uh, where they are. I mean, they, they have a microchurch and a strip club. The bouncer of that place found Jesus, felt like he had to quit his job because part of his job was recruiting girls. Uh, they are in, in every little corner of society. So I, I see real power in this thing. I see a lot of fear. I, I see guys who are never going to do what Parker's doing uh, might do what Myron's doing, reaching out through DigiChurch and 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 then learning how to disciple people on the ground that live in another continent. That's amazing. But uh, to me, the greatest opportunity that the church faces right now is for those churches of under 200 people, because that's most churches. Most churches are right around 100 people couldn't afford to go out and try to clone themselves. It would kill them. But they could uh, get somebody all stoked up on, uh, I, you know, one of my friends started a church in a mixed martial arts studio. I wouldn't even go in one of those places. But <laughs> he, he, he reached in there, and, there, and it's cranking. You know, these kinds of churches in these little pockets of society are the people who are not shown. They're the 70% who could care less about what we're doing. So, um, yeah, I, I wrote the book on microchurch not knowing a lot. Um, I, I, in the book, I think there's eight or nine illustrations that came out of 2,400 Hope Chapels. I only knew of about eight or nine microchurches because we went for bigger. But now I see the potential in this thing, and, I, and I'm trying to preach that gospel. And I'm, I'm meeting people like Parker and you, Myron, and a whole bunch of people. Um, I'm, I'm working with my pastor right now, a man named Ryan Delameter. They've started four microchurches in the last year. Um, pretty exciting. I think there's a tidal wave coming. Yeah. Yeah, I think people definitely see the need for it. Um, it's like it's not, a, it's not an idea at this point. Um, you know, when you have like, we had a, our governor said, you can't sing and you can't meet in homes. Um, so you immediately go, maybe we need a church that's <laughs> a little bit more or a little bit less fragile. Um, and that's what we've seen about the micro church thing. I'm not, um, one thing I refuse to do is manufacture energy for it. 
Um, mm. And I think a lot of people are stuck in the cycle of manufacturing energy and that's what's killing them. Um, you're like manufacture, manufacture, market, you know, meet the customer's needs. And it's like you've made this social contract with a group of people. And you're just one man or, or a couple, you know, trying to feed thousands of people. Um, so we like we do have an ecclesial, ecclesiological minimum um, and it's Acts 2, 42 through 47. I'm just going to read it real quick. Um, take two seconds. Um, but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So what, is, what does the word say? Do what the word says. That's the New Testament for us, right? Or the entire breadth of scripture. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. So that's a big one for me. Eat together and pray together. Food is so important to our culture. Um, and, and that's where real family happens at the table. Um, everyone was filled with awe and the many wonders and miraculous signs done by the apostles. So miracles are taking place, um, testifying to the gospel. All believers were together and had everything in common. So they're generous. They're giving stuff away. They're putting it at the feet of the apostles. They're taking care of each other's needs. So they're generous people. Selling their possessions and good, they gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So they're constantly gathering. They actually like being around each other. They broke bread in their home, see, eating again, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, uh, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So they're worshiping together. And the Lord added to their number daily those that are being saved. So people are getting saved, getting baptized. Um, so if people aren't getting saved in a church, if people aren't eating together, if people aren't sharing their money, um, and they're not devoting themselves to the word, then we don't have a church, we have a group. Um, so I, I try and try and bring my guys back to Ephesians 4 and Acts 2, 42 through 47. The maturing church is Ephesians 4. The church in practice is Acts 2, 42 through 47. Um, and that's what we always are aiming for. It doesn't mean you're not a church. If you miss one of those during the week, if like someone forgets to bring communion or something, cause we got a lot of youngsters, you know, but like yeah. that's, that's what we're aiming for. So. I love that. You know, something interesting is that we built Hope Chapel around those two scriptures uh, way, way back in 1971. Uh, we, wow. we, we discovered Acts chapter 2. And, you know, it was, it was the whole hippie thing, right? Uh, guys that were contest surfers quit surfing contests because that was not organic. There was that, that whole ethos and weirdness going on. But, you know, softball teams to us, we didn't seem see church softball in Acts chapter 2. Later on, we kind of realized if people get out and play ball together, they probably are having – that's the fellowship aspect. But then we we got real hard line about um, Acts or Ephesians 4, that the purpose of the church is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So we were on mission. And a lot of times people, you know, want to blow smoke about how many churches we planted over the years – but then they reject the simplicity of what Parker just described, uh, what I just described, and the way that we've gone about it. And uh, it, it's so easy to relationally uh, equip people and, and, and build them up for this. You know, I just wrote an article called, I think it was called Another Take on Evangelism. And um, one of the things that I tried to point out in that article, I'm not sure I did a good job, is that... Um, that we're all working in an attractional model. You know, that, that term, attractional church, has come to mean a big marketing budget, throw off the big party on the weekend, you are an event manager, and, and, and yet 
of course, it's not it's not making any headway with the culture that we're in. In fact, it, it, it angers people because they see the waste of money. But those very same angry people are attracted. So here comes the word attractional model to a friend, to somebody who will listen to them. And uh, one, one of the most powerful things that I think that we have going for us, in, including like I have right now, a couple of people who are attacking whatever I post on Facebook. And I do tend to be, a little bit on the conservative side uh, politically, but not too much. I, 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 I'm, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm, I'm, I'm me. But uh, I was recently given an opportunity because of what the person said, <laughs> anger. And, but, the, but they quoted somebody who's a really good friend. They were trying to stuff this article down my throat from Ed Stetzer. And Ed and I are friends. And so it gave me an opportunity to reach back and go, thank you for this. You know, da, 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 da. When we begin to listen to people and dialogue with people, that's attractional. And that's the real attraction. And all the rest of it to me is fluff. And like, like uh, Parker said earlier, you know, Hillsong does it well. The rest of us do it poorly. And we ought to get back to what we can do well, which is make friends and Share the gospel. Mm. Eat food together. Mm-hmm. Well, Ralph, tell us real quick who you're voting for, though. <laughs> I'm not telling you anything like that. That's, that's always my secret. Hey, Parker, I, know, I know you've used language around micro church, and uh, one, one word I've heard you use is the word family. Yeah. I've been preaching that gospel for a while. I did a, a breakout session at a uh, some type of church leadership event. And I was talking about the shifts we need to make. And, and one of the shifts I said we need to move from is from organizational charts to family trees. Mm, and the whole idea of, yeah, so like the whole idea of family. Um, tell us why you use that language sure. and the impact it's having on your, your Ooh, church. You're going to have to interrupt me on this one, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, well, family's where it all happens. That's where you really get discipled. That's the, that's the real thing. Um, so I know you're checking on your kids, so I'll just keep going. Um, but, um, really I think what our, our generation needs right now and what, um, especially Gen Z millennials, but a lot of guys that I'm meeting, um, in Gen X as well, um, need, need fathers, um, need fathers and mothers to walk them through life. Now I had this conversation with my wife, um, <laughs> last week and she's like, you're not that interested in that. And I'm like, I am because I'm interested in shifting culture. Um, we're interested in shifting culture completely to a familial model of, of church and a familial model of doing it and a familial model of discipleship and a familial model of raising disciples generationally. Um, every miraculous, um, amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit, every single um, revival, I guess you could call it, or awakening that we've seen in the history of the United States has petered out because it's not generational. Um, and it's because we're not handing it off. We're not giving it to each other. We're not giving it to the next generation. Um, and it was so dependent on um, the man, so to speak, like a man or a group of men running it. Um, and I think one aspect of it is bringing our women alongside of us um, 
in ministry out of the side they came, um, not, you know, underneath us. They didn't come out of our feet. <laughs> so, so bringing them alongside us um, and giving that uh, a voice in our church, um, not to the point where it's unbiblical, but I think to a point where, man, a redeemed woman is a discerner and she'll save so many men from so, ma- so much heartache um, in their life. Um, and I'm learning that um, step by step. But I would say um, it's funny that you say family tree. Um, and I read this book, Team of Teams, and they kind of went to. You can learn something from Al-Qaeda, man. It's a relational network. You, you squash one part of it and the other part pops up. It's the same as the New Testament church. And the, the U.S. military had to learn that. And I think the church is in that learning process now where we have this big Western system that's, that's archaic, that's, that, co- that consumes money. It doesn't just cost money. It's, it's the best, the better you get at it, the more it costs per person. It's insane. Um, so, so less goes to the mission and more goes to keeping things status quo. So for me, the family model fixes that and it's where needs get taken care of too. It's like, man, someone knows what's going on in that person's life. Um, and that's where t- long-term culture actually shifts because we have two parallel cultures happening right now. We have, and I've lived in a post-God society in New York, and we have a culture running alongside of it that we need to create where after this sexual revolution fails, and it will, people will look at what we're doing and go, maybe I want something more fulfilling. Maybe I want something different. Um, and, and that's what I see the microchurch really doing um, in, in great effect. So that's all, I'll, I'll, leave it, I'll leave that there because I'll just keep going. <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, speaking of how do how are new families formed with uh, with what you're doing and what you're leading? What's that process like? So we have a simple uh, four step process, um, and it's based on a sequoia. It's called the sequoia model of church planting. It's based on the tree, the sequoia. So there's these tiny little ac- like not acorns, uh, pine cones. And they're actually, funnily enough, with all the fires going on, they're locked up. But if they're hit by fire, they pop open and actually plant their seeds. So they're so tightly packed. And sometimes squirrels and stuff will get at them. But fire is the best thing for sequoia groves growth because it prepares the soil. So the first thing we plant with is the fire of the Holy Spirit in prayer because that's how we see the early church birth. And that's how we believe every church should be birthed. What's the Holy Spirit doing in your church? It's the Spirit of Christ, the same Spirit that rose... Jesus from the dead needs to start your church. Otherwise, you're manufacturing energy. Mm. Um, We don't want to do that. We want to do what the Holy Spirit's doing. Um, And then we reach the lost, which is the seed of the gospel. So that seed pops out and you're spreading seed like crazy. Just share the gospel with everyone. Share with friends and family especially because that's what most people are good at. Not everyone's going to get a chance to open air preach or put hands on people um, in the street. Um, We teach them how to do that, but, but it really is their circles. Um, and then the third one is the soil of discipleship. So you've got that prepared soil. The seed goes into the soil of discipleship, which is those little family units. Um, and out of discipleship, you grow a church. Um, so we kind of took the traditional model of church planting, which is find a place and get people to come and then try and get them in a discipleship funnel and flip the funnel upside down, like start with disciples. Um, and we tried it the other way before and it never worked. They always died. It always ended up being some kind of weird small group. Um, but when we focused on discipleship, the churches are free. They look different from each other, but they all have discipleship as the key component. 
um, as the thing that grows the church and matures the church. I love that. What, what leadership journey do you take potential church planters? We do a one day training with them. They've, you know, yeah, go ahead. Finish your question. Sorry. You broke up a little bit. So I thought you finished. Yeah, I did. Go ahead. You said, go ahead. Uh, um, we take them through a one day training right now through that four fold process, um, that four cycle process, uh, make sure they're baptized in the Holy spirit, um, because they need the Holy spirit to do the work. We run them through a first Timothy questionnaire. So make sure they meet the elder requirements, um, laid out in first Timothy. Um, and the main difference being, um, we test them as a couple, usually, uh, man or woman together. Um, if it's a single person, that's fine. Um, but most of the time we like a couple that's ideal. Um, but where there's not the ideal grace is sufficient. Um, but, um, take them through that process and then we start them. Um, and we coach them for four to five months over the process of the beginning of their church through that four cycle process. Um, and that's what we've been doing. We've been in the middle of that process with, and starting that process with six or seven churches right now. Wow. I just, I just love this simplicity, man. Because I, I think sometimes we, at least in the legacy model, through three to five years, you know, in the, in the legacy model, you got to go through three to five years of education and class. And I'm not opposed to any of that. But when you look at movements like, uh, you know, what's his name, Yin Kai? Um, they have just these simple processes in place to, to plant churches, raise up leaders, multiply. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, once you get a room with 30 people in it, 40 people in it, it requires a different set of skills to communicate with them. And it requires a different kind of training that takes time and practice and failure. And to, to catch up with population growth, we just don't have that kind of time. People need the gospel and need to know how to share it with their friends and start their own church. Right. I mean, long term. If you we want, we want to win the war, not just keep winning battles on Sunday. I think. What's the rhythm of of your micro, the micro churches you you guys lead? Um, the rhythm looks like a Sunday gathering. Usually, it just works best. Um, that's what you're asking, right? Like, what a weekly rhythm looks like. Yeah, or just a yeah for the life of the, an average salt church. Like, what's the rhythm of the church, and what's the rhythm of a leader? Uh, yeah. So the church looks like gathering on Sunday, and then discipleship fire teams during the week, and then just an open door, a house that people are at all the time. So usually a, a location like my parents' house has like they're blowing up right now. Probably forty or fifty people in their house in their one bedroom apartment, Huntington Beach, and they just can't. I mean, they're in their seventies and people need parents. So they're just like, they're like, they can't get enough, <laughs> you know? Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, and they eat together, they're hanging out during the week, all that kind of stuff. Um, but those are really the only two things we ask of people throughout the week. Um, officially, um, leaders, um, we have a monthly dinner, um, which we just started because we've been expanding our team. Um, a monthly dinner where we catch up on everything and then check church health um, through our four cycle process. Like, are you guys praying together? Are you doing this? Are you having fun together? And then we go through Acts 2, 42 to 47, make sure those things are happening. Their church is healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'm available to our leaders, you know, when, when they need stuff. 
And then my parents are registered uh, marriage counselors. So we do a pressure test on marriages every once in a while. <laughs> I, I love that. And I, you know, as people are watching and viewing this conversation in Parker, one of the things that, that may be going through the mind of a, a leader is the whole funding. Can you yeah. like maybe, maybe speak to funding? Because I was, I was just in a conversation and uh, there's a church that's launching here and and we we got on budgets and the average budget um, to launch a traditional kind of legacy church is about three hundred thousand uh, yeah. dollars. Probably on the low on the low end. Yeah. Um, like, hey, that tell, tell us about that. that man. Speak about that. Speak to that. Before, before yeah. Parker goes, before Parker goes, I want to talk about that. Go for um, it, man. <laughs> I've I've been coach. I've been coaching a guy who raised $1.25 million to plant a church. And a year later, there's about 120 people, and he's got 20-some-odd congregations that dump money into him, breathing down his throat for why is this not a mega church? He's dying to do what, what you and Parker are doing. He is so sorry that he took that money. Mm-hmm. And while I was researching for the book uh, Mega Multi- multiply, I, uh, I came across a, a figure that at first it's like, no, this is not true. And, and, and it is this, that in the United States, we spend just over $1 million per every person who nods their head or looks up or raises their hand in a church service. To, no, no, excuse me, who gets baptized. They go all the way to getting yeah. baptized. And overseas, now, so what that does is that tallies up uh, building, mortgage costs, uh, marketing costs, staff costs, uh, cost of running seminaries, all the stuff that we do in America to support this broken model of church. It, it's costing a million dollars per baptism. Overseas, we're twice as good as that. It only costs 500000 in in terms of world missions. And, and, and yet what we're doing here cost no money at all. What's it, you know, what's it cost to dunk somebody in the ocean? And as we're looking at these things, we just, we, we just have to come back and find some way of trimming this model and mm. getting it somewhere within reality. Myron, before, again, we let Parker go off, you're starting digi churches in other countries. How much are you spending to do, to, to, to start a church and where do you spend the money? Um, we're, def- we're definitely not launching churches for 300 grand. Um, <laughs> probably more like 300, maybe $300. Um, but, um, you know, you, you look at Parker's model, you, you, that's, that's our model. We pray, we, we outreach, we disciple, we scale. That's how I like to remember it, PLDS pods. And, uh, so when we think about reaching people, planting churches, I mean, minimum 300 but we're spending those dollars actually in outreach. I call it, you know, digi impact. It's, it's the, it's, you know, and, and obviously, um, which by the way, if you're watching now and you're like, man, I want to, want to do that, but I don't even know where to start. Well, go to launch in digital churches.com and that kind of give you some, and, uh, and then also, if you're on now, just send me an email and I'll send you the free um, Facebook marketing for pastors. It's, it's what you really need to 
if you're going to plant busy churches. But so that's what we're spending it on. Um, we're spending a, a Zoom account that everybody has access to. Um, and it's, it's been amazing to to reach people, make disciples from from the comfort of my uh, my leather couch. <laughs> no stress. <laughs> but yeah. So yeah, Parker, like talk to us about your your funding model, man. What does that look sure. like? Um, we support raise for our income like missionaries. So we consider ourselves missionaries to the United States um, and we support raise um, from a team of about 50 or 60 people for our personal income. Um, with churches that have been around six months plus, we have about a 90% tithe rate. So 90% of people in that room are giving because they're getting discipled. So you're in a fire team, you're in family. It's like, why aren't you giving? It's not like this conversation that you need to like tiptoe around or like try and figure out. It's like, you need to be giving. <laughs> you're missing out on blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps uh, a lot. Um, and as far as like cost, a lot of, I mean, our money goes to the trainings that we do. Our money goes to maybe helping start up a church, give them some, you know, catering supplies, uh, max like three or 400 bucks. Um, and then um, orphans and widows. So it just goes right out the door. Um, about 70% of our money goes right out the door. Um, so funding is an interesting thing. And I just want to say like really quick, like, <laughs> like if that's your first question, you're in the business for the wrong reason anyways. <laughs> like you're just asking the wrong question, man. Like if, if your first question is budgets, like you're, you're worried about the wrong thing. Um, it, because that's, I just can't find it in Jesus teaching. And I, it's hard for me to find an ax. I find giving, I find generosity. I find taking care of people's needs. I find rich people, I find poor people, I find people of all classes and races, but you don't find um, is someone um, worried about budgets. You don't see Peter worried about budgets too often when you're like getting persecuted. Um, and that's what, I mean, the persecuted church isn't like, how much does it cost? <laughs> right, right. Your life, man, you get crucified, you get hand chopped off, you get your children taken from you, your property taken from you. Like we ask, we're asking those questions because we live in a relatively free space. So it, do it for the, do it for the mission and let Jesus take care of the rest. I'd say it's harder to live and I don't live it all the time. Like I'm glad my wife's not on this, this with me, but for that reason, but that's, that's, that would be my advice. on that. End. Yeah. I, I, I love that, man. Um, you know, we, we got to have models that work. I know philanthropy in America, especially in the Christian church, is shrinking. And so even that, you know, some of the traditional funding models are going to be tough to keep up with. So in yeah. our context, we're launching micro churches, bitty churches. Uh, we're also raising up what I call side hustle pastors. And uh, it's, it's, you know, because we're in the hood. and uh, I like that language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Side hustle pastor, man. So, um do you have any, so two, two things, we know you have to go. Do you have any words of advice or wisdom for, for the person who says, hey, man, I want to go after, um, you know, planting micro churches, number one. Yeah. Number two, how can people get a hold of you if they have more questions? Sure. Um, geez, uh, I don't know if there's one piece of advice, but 
um, I guess the one piece of advice would be be a disciple and you'll, you'll make them. I mean, first and foremost, like you're going to stand before that great white throne and no one's going to stand up there for you. Um, so when it comes to planting micro churches, you have to be a disciple. You have to be in that secret place. Um, I read this book, Secrets of the Secret Place by Bob Sorge. Uh, absolutely transformed my life and my rhythm of life and my spiritual disciplines. Um, but unbroken fellowship with Christ and obedience to him is the goal, man. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's what I'd say. And just do what he says. And I think you'll end up with the church around you because that's what we saw in the New Testament. Um, or you'll end up with a church globally like you're doing now. It's like you're just doing what he's asking every right. day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, that's where the bread is. That's where the river of life is. It's just asking every day. Um, and then um, if people want to reach me, um, we have a website, saltchurches.com. I don't know how we got it, but we got it. Um, <laughs> saltchurches.com. And then if you want to reach me personally, my email is parker at saltchurches.com. Man, hey everyone, I just want to remind you head over to multiplication.org. We have some hundred something roundtables uh, that we are doing through Exponential. You don't want to miss it. All the information and resources are there. Appreciate everyone viewing today. Parker Green, Saw Churches, man, it's good to, good to meet you, bro. And uh, looking forward to seeing what God's going to continue through you. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.